welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the trial of the week where I review a landmark trial that was published this month in medical history. And today I'm very lucky to highlight a practice changing ID research study with four pharmacist authors. And today's article is comparison of the effectiveness and safety of linazolid and daptomycin in vancomycin resistant enterococcal bloodstream infections, a national cohort study of veteran affairs patients featuring first author Nick Britt. This was published in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases in 2015. Now, we briefly reviewed the history of VRE treatment and the two comparator agents before diving in to the trial of the week itself and discussing the ultimate findings and takeaways, and then ending with a discussion as to how this continues to impact the care of patients with a VRE bloodstream infection. So get excited. The September trial of the week begins right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And for this September trial of the week, very thankful to be joined by Nick Britt. Now, Nick is an assistant professor of pharmacy practice and internal medicine at the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy and Medicine, as well as an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Kansas Health System, Rock Chalk. So at nbritt underscore PharmD is where you can find him. Nick, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um. So let's get into this awesome um, kind of trial of the week, historic landmark study, um, especially from a pharmacist infectious diseases perspective. Um, But let's set the scene. And um, so this study was published in 2015. So what was our standard of care for VRE treatment at that time? Well, um, so the thing about VRE is there's really – not many options to begin with. So um, really the, the two options are uh, daptomycin and linazolid. And so that, even back in 2015, um, really the two options for VRE treatment, particularly for bloodstream infections. Um, and so there's really no consensus as far as treatment at that point. Um, it was very case dependent, center to center, um, different studies. Uh, had different amounts of people who would get treated with one versus the other. Um, but I would say it was about 50-50 daptomycin, linazolid. Um, maybe closer to 2015, you started to see more daptomycin use. Um, but overall, it was very um, was very even between those two agents. It was really people people had their favorite and they stuck to their they stuck to their guns in a sense, right? Everyone kind of it was it was split down the middle. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, you know, there was 
some studies that had looked to compare between daptomycin and linazolid. Um, you know, there was quite a few individual uh, kind of retrospective single center observational studies. They tried to do a couple clinical trials um, with VRE bloodstream infection, um, and all of those failed basically in terms of enrollment. Um, so really, we're just sort of left with these retrospective clinical data, some in vitro studies, that type of thing to try to guide treatment decisions. Um, and so, you know, these are all studies with very small numbers of people, um, you know, less than 100 patients or so. Um, and so, you know, really, it was just kind of up to the individual clinician as far as what agent to choose. Well, let's get back in our DeLorean for a second and go back to the future. Like, what was our timeline of antibiotic development between, like, daptomycin and linazolid? Which was FDA approved first for the treatment of VRE? So, um, you know, linazolid is the only one that's actually approved for VRE bloodstream infections. Um, And, you know, both of those agents have been around since the early 2000s, um, basically. So they've been around for, for quite a while. So daptomycin actually doesn't have an FDA approval um, for VRE bloodstream infections. It was one of those things that, you know, we realized that it had some activity against VRE and it could be used for those infections. Um, but really, again, there's not this sort of large randomized controlled trial saying that it, you know, one works better than the other. We, we won't spoil the results, but for those who know this study, it's, it's, uh, that is um, kind of ironic which one is FDA approved and which one actually isn't. Um, so walk us through how this study actually came to be because this is truly a testament to when we get into the, to, to the data of just true nitty-gritty research at the time. So how did, how did this all start? Um, so yeah, this is kind of a, a long, um, long story going back to how this began. So um, it actually started when I was, a, uh, a pharmacy student at the VA and, um, you know, as a pharmacy student intern, I kind of got to be involved in um, some more clinical things as I progressed throughout my, my pharmacy school. Um, so I got asked to do, do an MUE and I had some interest in ID infectious disease at the time. So daptomycin was, um, you know, kind of uh, being used more often. It was a high cost drug. And so I decided, you know, to look at that. And as I was doing more research, I got to learn about VRE infections, you know, some controversy over, you know, where, you know, whether we should be using daptomycin or other agents for certain infections. And so I thought, hey, this could be maybe a cool little mini research project, um, you know, at our institution. Um, So I talked to one of the the pharmacist there who was just out of residency and uh, her name was Emily Potter and she was, you know, really eager to precept and do research and that kind of thing. And um, so we, you know, got to write an IRB protocol and um, kind of approached our research office. And, you know, the research chief was like, yeah, this is cool, but you're not going to have very many patients. Um, You know, why don't you do like a national VA study and get, get data from, you know, the entire VA system across the nation. So I was like, okay, that's, that sounds cool. Um, and, you know, so she's the one who first suggested that. Um, but what I really didn't realize is that, um, you know, 
I could get access to the data, but I'd have to figure out, you know, how to pull the data from the databases, what to do with it, how to organize it, all that type of thing. Um, so that turned into basically a, a weekend project. Um, you know, when I was working at the hospital, when things got slow, I had some downtime. I would go in and try to figure out how to pull data and get it organized and that type of thing. So in the meantime, I kind of got the, the research bug and and um, became more and more interested in research. I ended up doing a, a master's degree program in research um, and so was able to kind of devote more time to research and learning how to actually do a study properly. Um, and then, you know, I, at that time I got uh, started working with another faculty member at KU, Molly Steed, who had uh, worked and done quite a bit of uh, in vitro stuff with VRE. And I kind of told her, hey, I've got this large VA data set with, you know, 500 plus patients. Um, and she perked up and got really excited. And then we roped in some other people to help with some of the statistics. And so it was kind of a big team effort that took multiple years um, to kind of get this this project done. But um, but yeah, that's that was basically my life on the weekends for a couple of years was this this project. Well, how cool that, you know, you, the, you're still, you're, the fruits of your labor are still teaching, teaching pharmacists and learners and things from this. So it's the, that work was, um, you know, still being put to good use, but yeah, that certainly sounds like a, an endeavor. And I love that. Um, the, it's funny how there's little things like this that happen that change the course of everything. If, if that person didn't suggest you to do this VA national study, you who knows if you if you're as interested in research as you do, right? It's kind of like a, a snowball effect a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it would have been kind of a little, you know, MUE with, you know, a dozen people, that type of thing. And it ended up turning into, you know, this big, you know, national study and definitely probably changed the course of my career for sure. And I mean, for, for learners listening, right, it started with an MUE, right? It started with an idea. So that's that's really cool. Um, let's kind of get, we've been talking about it. So let's talk about, uh, our September trial of the week published in 2015 in clinical infectious diseases. Uh, it's entitled the comparison of the effectiveness and safety of linazolid and daptomycin in vancomycin resistant enterococcal bloodstream infection, national cohort study of veterans affairs patients. So, uh, retrospective national cohort study enrolled patients admitted to any VA medical center from January 2004 through January 2013, basically New Year's Day. Um, patients were included if they had at least one uh, positive blood culture for VRE. Uh, for those patients who had recurrent uh, VRE blood cultures, it was just the the first positive encounter that was included. Um a couple key exclusion criteria would be if you had combination or sequential treatment with both agents or if your treatment um, with these agents was for less than uh, 48 hours. Uh, now, the primary outcome was treatment failure, uh, defined as a composite outcome of 30-day all-cause mortality, microbiologic failure, and VRE recurrence. So 644 patients were ultimately included in the final study analysis. And I always like to point out 
when we're looking at daptomycin studies. So the median dose here was six mg per kg, where, of course, everyone um, received the, the 600 milligrams Q12 of the comparative linazolid. So, Nick, come back, review anything I miss, and, and what did this uh, study ultimately find outcome-wise? Yeah, so I, I think that's a good summary of the, the high points. Um, you know, basically in this study, you know, we had over 600 patients, about 50-50, as I mentioned, were treated with linazolid versus daptomycin. So kind of what, you know, we saw there really is, you know, a coin flip as far as who, who would get what agent. Um, when you compare the groups, you know, you could say, you know, maybe there was Sicker patients got linazolid, um, higher Apache scores, um, which we adjusted for, um, and all those other differences between the two groups that you see often in these retrospective types of studies. Um, but really what we saw was improved mortality with daptomycin, um, reduced duration of bacteremia, um, and so overall uh, favoring daptomycin versus linazolid for um, these VRE bloodstream infections. I mean, in, in terms of, of outcomes you're looking for, I mean, it's, it's checking just about every box you want from a, from a safety and efficacy perspective. Yeah, definitely. And, and we did look at um, safety. Um, we looked at thrombocytopenia for, you know, the most common thing that we would look for with linazolid. Um, and um, we looked at CPK elevation um, with daptomycin. Um, really, we showed that, you know, these types of adverse events are rare. Um, CPK elevation, uh, I think we saw in less than 3% of patients. So, um, you know, although we think of that as really the key thing to focus on with daptomycin, it is relatively rare um, to see CPK elevations, rhabdo, those types of things um, with, with daptomycin, particularly at these, these types of doses. So, um, yeah, so overall you know, favoring daptomycin and, and both of them were relatively um, safe in terms of their adverse events. Now, how did you and your research team come up with the composite definition of treatment failure? So that was sort of borrowed from um, some of the other retrospective studies with staph aureus bacteremia. So, you know, in these ID studies, we like to look at mortality as kind of your hard endpoint, um, you know, that's kind of the gold standard. If you can show mortality benefit of one versus another, that's, you know, you know, that's, that's great. Um, but, you know, we know these patients are complicated. They're sick. They've got lots of comorbidities. Um, oftentimes they're switching antibiotics from one versus another one. They're changing doses, all these sort of complexities that you see in day-to-day clinical practice. Um, so we do like to look at some other um, kind of softer surrogate endpoints. So duration of bacteremia is a common one we look at for bloodstream infections. If they have a recurrent infection, that's another thing that we, we look at. So um, that's uh, so sort of combining those uh, in, in terms of a composite clinical failure um, was, was what we decided. And, and really, you know, it was sort of how would you manage this patient clinically if they're having persistent bacteremia, then you would probably say, you know, we need to switch the agent. So that's probably a, a failure. Um, but we know that 
just because a patient has persistent bacteremia doesn't necessarily mean it's due to the antibiotic. There's other things like source control, um, patients' um, immune uh, function, those types of things that that come into play as well. So um, that was sort of the decision making into why we went with kind of that that composite endpoint. Although we did break it down individually as well and showed differences in some of those individual components. So one thing that stood out to me um, looking into the results um, was that, you know, daptomycin susceptibility testing was really, you know, only available in just about 10% of cases. So in this era, how challenging was it to use daptomycin as a first-line agent when you you aren't able to routinely get susceptibilities? Yeah, so that's that's a good a good question, and I think that highlights a common challenge that we have in practice um, in infectious disease management is susceptibility testing, um, both what information is available and the timing of that. You know, is it when is it available? Is it clinically actionable, um, especially in patients who have bloodstream infections that are that are pretty sick? Um, and so, oftentimes you do see delays in availability of susceptibility testing results. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with you know different centers um, in these types of multi-center studies have different types of susceptibility testing platforms. Um, you know. There's delays and approvals from FDA. The, the FDA approval process for susceptibility testing is, is separate from, you know, the approval of the drug itself. So we see this a lot um, with newer agents where, you know, the drug's out there and available, but we have difficulties getting susceptibility testing results and those types of things. Um, so I think that's one piece. Um, the other thing is that, you know, this study goes back to, patients even from the early 2000s, like all the way back to 2003, um, early on when daptomycin was first coming to market, there really wasn't um, a whole lot of resistance out there. Um, if you go back to some of these older surveillance studies, you know, they're reporting like 4,000 isolates um, and 100% susceptibility um, to daptomycin. So resistance was, was really pretty rare. Um, and a lot of that is probably due to the fact that um, some of the, the breakpoints were probably set too high, um, meaning that, you know, we were calling some of these susceptible that, that may have been resistant based on the, you know, what we know now about the PKPD. Um, but, um, you know, so I think that was also a part of it as well, is that there was this thought that, you know, there's not a lot of resistance. Um, out there so you know we can comfortably treat them even without the susceptibility testing results and then you know again there's not really many other options so um, it was sort of you know this is what we have available um, and you know unfortunately on a lot of these these centers they didn't have susceptibility testing um, on board I mean, and you don't necessarily know it at the time, but it is comforting the the number, right? The because it's a newer one, the the rate of susceptible versus you know intermediate or resistant that does bring comfort, at least you know hindsight to us now. Um, right now, taking the results of of this study and kind of seeing where we are, just about eight years later. So, have there been any studies since comparing these two agents for this same indication, VRE bacteremia? Um, so there haven't really been any 
major studies that have compared them. Um, what's, you know, since this study, kind of the next question was really, um, how do we optimize daptomycin further for treating VRE bloodstream infections? So if we think daptomycin is better than, than linazolid, um, are there other ways we can optimize it? Because um, we didn't really get into this, but even though there was a mortality difference with daptomycin, um, you know, if you look at the actual mortality rates, it's still like 20 to 30%. So these are still really high mortality rates. Um, and, you know, you know, obviously these are sick patients. So, you know, that's not really something that we want to accept. Can we further reduce mortality in these patients? So um, there is, so kind of our next study um, that we did within our group was looking at daptomycin dosing. So we kind of alluded to this a few times already, but, um, you know, back when daptomycin first came to market, sort of this standard dose was four to six um, mix per kg, right? And the six mix per kg was the high dose really at the time. That was what you would use for like an MRSA, bacteremia, kind of really sick types of patients. Um, but what we kind of started to realize was that enterococcus um, you know, the MICs to enterococcus for daptomycin were two to fourfold higher than what you would see with even staph aureus. So if we think about daptomycin as being this concentration-dependent killing antibiotic, you know, AUC to MIC, if the MICs are two to fourfold higher, it kind of makes sense that we might need to increase the dose um, to improve outcomes. So there was quite a bit of work um, both in vitro and some clinical studies that were trying to determine whether high doses, meaning higher than six, would be needed for, for VRE bloodstream infections. Um, so people started to use doses of, of eight mg per kg. That was sort of the, the, you know, the next step up above six, um, so to speak. Um, but if you, there were some other in vitro studies that were coming out that showed that really you need to go up to 10 mix per kg or higher to prevent um, the emergence of, of resistance. So um, I think as everyone's probably seen in their practice, if you start someone on daptomycin and then, you know, they don't clear the infection or it comes back and it's not susceptible, it's got a higher MIC. And so what they were showing in these in vitro studies was, you know, you really need this high dose to get that sustained killing. Um, so the daptomycin would work really well. You'd get fast killing, um, but then it would come back and it would have higher MICs that be, you know, resistant or not susceptible. Um, so we compared kind of these different dosing regimens, sort of the standard six mix per kg versus an eight mg per kg dose, which we call a medium dose or a mid dose, and a high dose, which was 10 mg per kg or higher. And we compared that with the, in the VA system as well as a follow-up study and showed that um, really you needed doses of 10 mg per kg or higher to optimize or improve survival um, in these in these patients. So um, we didn't actually even see much of a difference between 6 mg per kg and 8 mg per kg. Um, we really had to go up to that higher dose, 10 or higher, to see those, those differences. Um, so that was sort of the next um, study um, that was really optimizing um, use of daptomycin for VRE. And um, there's a couple other studies that um, followed that that showed similar results, you know, higher daptomycin doses are, are required. 
Um, and then, you know, since then, there's been some focus on MICs and, um, you know, there's been some breakpoint changes and other things. Um, but kind of the big takeaway is that 10 megs per kg or higher is sort of the, the preferred for these VRE bloodstream infections now. And there is actually um, a recent survey study that was done um, within the ACCP um, IDPRN group that surveyed infectious disease pharmacists to see how are you treating patients with VRE bloodstream infections? Are you using daptomycin? Are you using linazolid? What doses are you using? Um, and really about 90, over 90% of, of pharmacists now are recommending daptomycin as first line. And, you know, over 80% of those um, are recommending 10 to 12 mg per kg, sort of as first line for VRE bloodstream infection. So that's sort of um, the standard um, for where we are, where we're at now. Well, I love that you, that you highlighted um, the, that study uh, for the listeners at the dose kind of comparison study was from March 2017 with um, the same author group. Y'all just a, an awesome force in the, in the, the VRE yeah. treatment world. Um, so that's, that's actually really cool. I love that. Um, now thinking be a, a little bit beyond bacteremias, even though that's ultimately like the thing we're most concerned about, but thinking of other infections and of course, excluding pneumonia, um, should we be using daptomycin preferentially to linazolid for any kind of VRE treatment concern? Um, so yeah, obviously there's not a lot of comparative data, um, outside of bloodstream infections. I would say that, you know, we at our institution and, and others, um, sort of have extrapolated this to other types of serious high inoculum deep-seated infections. So if you had a patient who was, you know, really sick with VRE um, and, uh, you know, in like a intra-abdominal infection and osteomyelitis, those types of things um, where you probably have a high bacterial burden, um, I would probably treat them with, with a high dose um, as well. And then kind of my last question is, um, you know, not to downplay all the incredible research work that, that you and your team have done. And of course your, your other ID pharmacy colleagues across the country, but what are some questions that we still need answered? I know you mentioned, you know, other possible sites of infection, but thinking kind of the bacteremia world, what are we, what are we still kind of wondering about? Um, I would say, there's still a lot of unanswered questions with regard to combination therapies. Um, so, you know, as uh, particularly with the higher MIC organisms, um, think of like the three to four um, range. Um, so usually MICs of one to two uh, high dose daptomycin alone would probably be pretty effective um, if you look at some of the PKPD studies. Um, but once you get above that, like three to four, um, that's sort of where you're in this intermediate range where even if you're using the high dose daptomycin, um, there's the possibility that you might not, um, optimize PKPD. You still might have some, some, some poor outcomes. Um, so that's where the focus has kind of shifted maybe to adding combination therapies earlier on. So, um, if you have a strain that is, um, where you can use aminoglycosides for synergy, 
that's a good option. Um, but um, there's also been more focus on beta-lactam agents, um, which we know we use in combination um, quite a bit for like MRSA, things like septaroline, um, even agents which are um, in which enterococcus is intrinsically resistant. Um, there is some in vitro types of studies that show that you can still get some synergy um, with those agents um, with daptomycin. And so there is um, quite a bit of research in that area. I would say that it's difficult to tease out. Um, it seems to be sort of a strain-dependent phenomenon, meaning you know it, it might work in one patient with one strain, um, but it, it might not work as well for another patient or another strain. Um, so it is kind of predicting um, when and where to use those combination therapies up front is probably, um, you know, kind of an, another unanswered type of question, I would say. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on, sharing your expertise, and more importantly, for for all of the research that you're doing. What awesome, awesome work. Um, I'm glad I, we, we got to highlight just a, a small piece of it here on the podcast. So uh, for the listeners, definitely reach out to Nick at nbrit underscore farmd. And uh, Nick, I appreciate your time. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks so much. Another huge thanks to Nick. Thanks for uh, coming on and joining me talking about this awesome research study. Let, let me know your thoughts, please, folks, at pharmacy to dose, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com or pharmacy to dose.com. So, the reference list with the articles we discussed today, as well as that trial of the week, it's in the podcast episode description, as well as at pharmacy to dose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.